All right, so we are continuing in Hebrews, and I just want to get right into the text this morning because it's a little strange, and so I just am going to disorient us by jumping right in. We're in Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 11 this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary of when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and how it cuts across and cuts through the different cultures of this world, the different environments that your people find themselves living in. And so, Lord, as we talk about something today that probably seems very strange to us, I ask that we would, that we would humble ourselves, that we would approach your word ready to learn, ready to receive, and that you would help us do that, Lord. So we ask that your spirit would be on us, that we would, um, that we would hear from you, and that we would respond to you, and we are trusting that you have something good here for us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's strange. I was reading this and confronted with the fact that we don't think about discipline like this. We just don't, most of us anyway. Maybe if you're still one of the old school type people, you still think about discipline in this type of way. But I think what is happening in kind of the world that we live in more and more is that when we think about discipline, we have a negative reaction first. We kind of like get a little bit nervous. The first response that we have might even have like a really strong response against how we've experienced discipline in our own lives. And so what I want to do 
this morning is remind us of a couple of important things to take into account when we actually approach this part of the text. Because there's another interesting thing that the author of Hebrews does here. He's saying that God is using this oppression, this persecution, this pain and suffering that is inflicted on on the people he's writing to by sinners, that God is using that for discipline. And so there's multiple things happening there. And so to help us understand what's going on, I think it's helpful to remember that in, when you come to Scripture, Scripture sees different worlds. Scripture sees different worlds. And two of the categories of worlds that Scripture sees is the earthly world and the heavenly world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, the seen and the unseen. And what is happening here is that we're seeing kind of an intersection or an overlaying of those two worlds onto each other. And the claim of the author is basically that everything that is happening in the earthly world is being used by God in the heavenly world for a different purpose. For a different purpose. And so when he says that Jesus endured from sinners such hostility, and then points us to our own struggle against sin, what he's talking is about, about is the life of believers in the world. And life of believers in the world is hard. It's a, we are fish out of water in so many ways. And so as a Christian, because you belong to a different world, but you're living in this world still, there's going to be pain, there's going to be tension, there's going to be temptation. And those have various sources. There's different kinds of sources. Here you see that there's kind of like external opposition, such as Jesus suffered. He was opposed externally. But then there's a broader category where we are assumed to be struggling with sin in such a way that it causes pain. And that can happen both in our struggle with sin externally, as we are sinned against because we're Christians, or it can happen in our struggle with sin internally. And so we're going to actually see here that we should endure discipline as children of God. We should endure discipline as children of God. That is kind of the summary of this text. And in order for us to understand what that means, we're first going to look at an example of discipline an example of one who endured discipline. And then we're going to look at the identity that is confirmed through discipline. The identity that is confirmed through discipline, what it actually feels like to be a child. And then finally, we're going to look at the reward of discipline, the reward of discipline. But first, we're going to start right where the text does. By considering him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And the author is building on what we talked about last week. As we look to Jesus, 
because we have this great cloud of witnesses, we are reminded to look to Jesus to save us. Look to Jesus to sustain us. Look to Jesus to help us run this race that we're on. And so as we look to Jesus, now the author is pointing us into a very specific direction of looking to Jesus, and we're looking to Jesus as he suffered. Looking at the sufferings of Jesus. He endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And so this is also... This is like really strange advice. If you're thinking about, just think, just make this super practical for a minute. If you're sitting down with somebody who's suffering and they're like, just, they're just going through it. Maybe the worst thing that you would, you could do is say, well, it's not that bad. Cause look, that person's suffering more, right? Like that's not what we do. And yet the word of God is telling us to consider Jesus in our suffering. Why would the author do that? Does he do it to minimize our suffering, our persecution? Yes and no. Right? There's a little bit of a twist there that he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So it's a reminder, hey, you're still alive. Consider what Jesus suffered. He's died. He shed his blood in his suffering. But the primary purpose of it is actually to locate our sufferings in his sufferings because they're really connected. They are completely intertwined and interconnected. And so what he's doing by telling us to consider him who endured from sinners and to look at Jesus as an example is to find in Jesus as our example, not only our example, but our representative, the one who went before us, the one who shows us where we will be going. And so it's actually, this is one of those moments where um, it's sobering because what we're learning from the text is that as we suffer, we should expect to suffer. It's what God's people do. And as we think about Jesus' sufferings, there's a unique character to them because of his life, because of who he was. There was an innocence and a purity to Jesus because he perfectly represented that heavenly world in this earthly world. We're mixed. We still have kind of allegiances and a way of thinking that corresponds to this earthly world, the kingdom of man. Jesus was pure in that he only thought God's thoughts after him. And so if you think about that, in some ways, when Jesus was suffering, when he was suffering chastisement, when he was suffering rejection, when he was suffering abandonment, when he was suffering treason, when he was suffering on the cross, when he was being whipped, he was doing so with a completely innocent and pure mind. Like it wouldn't, in a way, it wouldn't have made any sense to him. 
Like, why would they do this? Whereas when we suffer things, I think we at least have a category for it. And Jesus understood, I'm not saying Jesus didn't understand suffering. He didn't understand evil. But it was an experience for him that was completely different than his nature. And so his suffering, the hostility that he faced and faced throughout his entire ministry, but coming to a point on the cross was like ours in some ways and much greater than ours in other ways because it was a completely strange world to him. And so we consider how he suffered and how he was faithful. We consider that the flesh that he suffered with was real human flesh. And so what, one, of the, one of the outcomes of considering Jesus and looking to him as an example is that it gives you a little bit of hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition. Hope that this is possible. It is possible to remain faithful. And when Jesus was in the midst of his opposition, one kind of event in his ministry usually comes to mind for people, and it's the Garden of Gethsemane. And so looking at how Jesus was enduring that opposition can be instructive for us. And so these are the practical things, is that Jesus did not suffer in his own strength. He didn't resist. He didn't oppose the evil that he was facing in his own strength. He went to God in prayer. And so he was living by the Spirit. He was dependent on the Spirit to fill him and to help him. What else was Jesus doing? And this didn't turn out so well for him. But he knew that he needed other people to help him. And so he asked the disciples, he said, come with me. Keep watch with me. I need your help. Now they fell asleep, so it didn't work out for him. But we can learn from that that we are actually not running this race alone. It's another reminder that we are in this together. This is a team sport, as it were. That we aren't just depending on ourselves, but we have help. And that help takes form of God's power in his spirit and the spirit working through the people. So we look to Jesus. And that should give us some type of endurance. It should help us endure. And the type of suffering... So I want to be careful because it's clear in this, in this passage that the author is talking primarily about persecution that happens because you're a Christian. But this is why I was talking about those two worlds. It's not like suffering is not easily categorized into different buckets that are completely separate from each other. 
right? So it's not as if like, oh, if you're suffering in this type of suffering of persecution, then it has no relationship to suffering with an illness or suffering mental anguish or suffering grief or suffering um, inner turmoil of some kind. All of those things belong to the kingdom of this world. All of those things belong to the kingdom of sin and darkness, and they're the weapons of the enemy, and they are used against God's image bearers. And so there's a universal type of suffering that is also in this category. And so if you are suffering in one of those ways, this still applies, even though it might not be exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about here, it's still very applicable. Because it's all in this same realm of living in a world that is opposed to God and his plan and his goodness. So after telling us to look to Jesus and consider him, he now tells us and reminds us that all discipline is a form of being a son. It's a way that we experience and know that we are sons. In verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as son? And then he uses Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and identifies this opposition with the discipline of the Lord. And again, this is where it's like, okay, there's two different things happening. Sinners are attacking Jesus. Sinners are resisting him. We are resisting sin. And God is using that for our discipline. And so while there is a immediate proximate cause, there's one who sits over that and is using it for something greater. And so we can trust. And this, so here's why this is good. Because this can be confusing sometimes. It's like, well, that doesn't sound good. (laughs) That means that God is doing it? No, God's not doing it, but he's using it. And even stronger than that, he has foreordained it for your good. And the good part about that is, is that there is nothing that can happen to you that is outside of God's plan and control. There's nothing. And so sometimes we suffer uniquely hard things and those questions pop up where it's like, this can't be part of God's plan. This can't be used for good. This is only bad. And that's what it feels like. And so understanding as God, God as sitting over sovereignly over all suffering is a really important part of understanding what he's doing with it. Because what it means is that there's nothing outside of this plan. This is a universal plan. And it's a universal way of understanding opposition, pain, suffering, all of those terrible things that we experience. And it's also somewhat confronting our own presuppositions about God and our lives. Because we live in... It's not, it's not just us. It's this world as a whole. We love comfort. And so we think that when we're doing the right thing, our life will be more comfortable. It'll feel good. It'll correspond with some version of the good life that we have. 
And yet what this is doing is showing you, no, that's not actually true. That there is often pain that's a good pain. And that just because you're feeling pain does not mean that you've done something wrong. And so he uses this metaphor of a father disciplining his son to help us understand this concept. Like, we're going through this opposition. God's using it for our good. And it's because he's a good father and you are his child. So in verse 5, he says that you are addressed as sons by this proverb. Okay? So then you read the proverb and it says, My son, do not regard lightly. It's singular. So he says, You are addressed as sons, plural. Talking about a singular son in Proverbs. And then back in verse 7, God is treating you as sons, plural. And so this is a beautiful, um, kind of like almost happy accident, I think, that the author is getting into. Because he's talking to people, multiple people, and he's telling them, you are all sons. You are all sons of God. And then he goes to Proverbs and jumps into Proverbs and says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And so what we should do is think, how can there be a son in Proverbs that this is about, and now multiple sons here? And it's, I think it's fairly clear. We can only be sons. We can only be children of God when we are found in the son of Proverbs. Proverbs 3, verse 10 and 11, yes, it's about, it's practical wisdom for fathers to discipline their children and understanding that it's, an actual, it's actually an act of love. But what it's actually about is the son who is disciplined by the father. It's Jesus. He is the son And it's only in him that we can claim to be sons. And that's important because otherwise, when you start thinking about an identity, especially in our culture, we're kind of obsessed with it. We we are obsessed with identity, maybe more than any other culture. But when you think of identity, you think immediately, just naturally, of identifying. Like, I identify as something, therefore I am something, right? That's one of the ways that our culture is interpreting this idea of needing to self-identify, needing to have some type of identity. And so we self-identify as something, and that is the power of identity. But you can self-identify as a child of God all day, And it makes no difference. You're not a child of God because you identify as a child of God. You are a child of God because you have been identified as a child of God by the Son. He is the legitimate Son of God. 
He is the one who actually comes from God, from the king's world. He is the rightful heir. And so as we think about how, wait, the author is now telling us that we are legitimate sons, and one of the ways that you know you're a legitimate son is because you are enduring the Lord's discipline. How can that be? It's because you are found in him. And that sends us back to kind of like that first point of like, he's our example, but he's our representative. If he suffered, then we will suffer. And it will be for our good, because that is the paradigm that Jesus sets for his children. And it just makes sense. That's where the practical example is actually really helpful. Because when you just think of the parent-child relationship, discipline is way more than punishment. Discipline is about preparation. It's about teaching. It's about imparting good to a child who's in need. And so as the author goes through this, he says, think about your earthly father. Even they, even earthly fathers try to discipline their children. And children will tell you it is not fun to be disciplined. Like discipline is not something that's pleasant, even when it's done really well, right? Like I'm not talking about the ways that discipline gets twisted and becomes evil and becomes abused. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about good, loving, kind discipline to train up a child and to pass on to that child an inheritance. That is the model of discipline that we're looking at. And even that is painful for a time. Even that is painful for a time. But we know that it's ultimately for our good. It's ultimately done in love. I was thinking about this um, when thinking about earthly, earthly parents and how even, um, even the best intended parent falls short. It's like you only have so much energy, Right? Like, you have to budget your energy as a parent throughout the day so that you still have enough left to do the bedtime fight. Like, you have to pick your battles. You really do. And so there's, there's some times where you're like, I should probably discipline, but I'm tired. And that's just the reality of it. And so zooming back out... And this is the argument, right, that the author's making, the lesser to the greater. Even the best earthly parents get tired. Even the best earthly parents don't always know what's best. It's just what's best for them. But when you zoom out and consider the discipline of God, it is unreservedly for our good. It has a cause and effect relationship where when we are disciplined, we share in God's holiness. And this is where becoming a son means that we are an heir. You're not just a son, but you are a son who is an heir. There is a reward. 
And so as you're enduring, as you are persevering, as you are continuing to resist and oppose all of the weapons of this world, and you're tired and you're hurt and you're suffering, it's so encouraging to know that there's not a question about how this is going to end up. It is for your good. And it's that you may share in his holiness. And that's the reward. That's the reward that this passage points us to. It's a sharing in God's holiness. Holiness is a setting apart It is kind of like a removing from what is common and making it sacred. It's a setting apart for an honorable use, for a holy use. And so God's holiness is that he is set apart from creation. He is completely other. He is beautiful. He is pure. He is holy three times over. And for us to share in that is astounding, first of all. But for the method of our participation in God's holiness to be our suffering only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. And if he did what he said he did. Because that is how we actually see the transformation of sin, of suffering, of death. And in the resurrection, we see life. We see him become what 1 Corinthians 15 says he became, a life-giving spirit by taking on death. And so you see that dynamic at work that it was through Jesus' suffering that he made himself holy for that purpose. He made himself holy for that purpose by taking on sin that didn't belong to him. By identifying himself with a sinful people, by taking the punishment that was due to those people. And by rendering it useless through his own death. By rendering it over, finished, complete in his death. And the resurrected Christ is the first fruits of more to come. And it's it explained here as peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So there is an ultimate sense that the author is pointing us towards, right? And we should be familiar with this. The author of Hebrews does this all throughout. He takes our eyes and points them into the future when we will enter the eternal Sabbath rest of God. And that's what he's talking about completely, fully, and finally. But that comes into this world now. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It is the work that God is doing in his people through their perseverance, through them being opposed, through their suffering even. And he is giving and yielding this peaceful fruit of righteousness. Here's what that feels like. When you are enduring something that's hard and you have an option, we all have options, right? 
when you are enduring something that's hard, it can be really tempting to think, you know what, this isn't worth it. And to just give up, to just punch out. Maybe you feel like that as you're resisting your own inner desire to sin in some way, to rebel against God in some way. Maybe it's your inner desire to have comfort when you don't when you're uncomfortable, to have health when you don't when you're unhealthy. And you say, well, if I disobey God over here, I might be able to get that. In my experience, when I do that and I get what I think I want, not only is it not nearly as satisfying as I wanted it to be, but it's haunting. The memory of how I achieved what I got follows me. And it haunts me. And I think we can all identify with that. We all know Like, when I get something unjustly, I don't sleep well. It keeps me up at night. And usually what will happen is that you will see it over time play itself out, and you'll see that what you were sold was complete lies because it comes from a different father. It comes from the father of this world as Jesus identified to the Pharisees during his earthly ministry, he said that you are children of the devil. And so when we are discipled in that way, according to the world, what we see is basically a different example. We see Judas, right? That comparison and contrast in the gospels, you see Judas and Jesus, they both end up in a tree, They both end up dead. But Judas was haunted. He was destroyed. He becomes a picture of death. And Jesus yields up his own spirit because he knows he can trust his father. And he becomes the life-giving spirit. And so this this can look a lot of different ways. We get put into these kind of situations all the time. We don't think about it this way often because we still think that this is kind of like a Christian-ish world or country. But all the time you guys feel this tension because it's contributing to how tired we are. It's like you might get pressured at work to deny an aspect of truth that you believe in. But there's going to be social pressure. There's going to be professional pressure placed on you to conform to the way of the world. And that's going to hurt. And it's going to give you the choice. Do I really need to endure that? Maybe not. There's an option to opt out of that. I'll just be quiet. I'll just fade away. There's your friend who doesn't know the Lord, and you get an opportunity to share the gospel, but you know that there's part of it that they're not going to like. 
part of the core of the gospel that they're just not going to like. And so you change the subject. You opt out. Maybe it's the culture at your workplace. Where the culture at the workplace is, you're working seven days a week. And even if you're not present physically, you're still expected to work seven days a week. And then you consider the rhythm of work and rest that the Lord has established. You consider his command saying, this is for your good to rest. And it's a way of reminding yourself that you are not God. Well, if you, if you say, hey, I'm going to take a day off, you're going to suffer. You will be opposed And so I want you to remember in those moments of choice, in those moments where it's actually made real for you, that that pain, that opposition, that resistance that you encounter, it's discipline. It is God preparing you to share in his holiness. It's a way of becoming set apart as his possession. It's a way of eventually you coming into that eternal rest where you display the glory of God as you are connected to Christ. And we're going to look at that as the book of Hebrews continues. This is really kind of the closing theme of the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus, as the true son, has selected a people out of the earth to show off his glory to demonstrate to the entire cosmos how good God is. And your suffering is part of that story. So persevere. Keep going. Trust him for that. You can trust him because he has shown himself faithful over and over and over. So endure. But don't just endure as a stoic who grits their teeth and grabs their grip a little tighter. Endure as a child of God, knowing that you will receive the reward he has promised you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of trusting your Son. And as we do that, Lord, you not only forgive us of sin, but you actually adopt us into your family. And because we are not second-class children in your household, Lord, you discipline us and you teach us. You teach us your ways, you teach us how you work, and you teach us in order to prepare us to receive our inheritance which is in heaven, in the physical resurrection of Christ that we will receive as he returns to this earth. And so, God, I ask that you would help us to trust you, help us to trust you in moments of suffering and opposition, in tension of this world, that we would know that you are here with us in it, that you see it and that you are using it for our good. Lord, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.